The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, after weeks on the road reporting on the Derek Chauvin murder trial from Minneapolis, Court TV legal correspondent Julie Janae is back on the podcast to share her impressions of the trial. Plus, I'll tell you about the James Addy murder trial. Did he really murder his fiancée just to avoid telling her about his actual wife? This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. And today, um, we're going to take a a look at a couple different stories, but we're going to begin... Uh, because we have an incredible opportunity here. Uh, As you know, our in-depth coverage of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man who murdered George Floyd, um, has concluded, at least for the guilt phase. He still has to be sentenced. There's a a lot more to cover. And there's the trial of the other three officers that, of course, Court TV will be covering. But Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae, who was in Minneapolis way before the trial, was there throughout, on the ground, is joining us now because she has a moment. And it's only about a moment that we have with her because she's still very busy covering other stories as well. But um, what I wanted to do was was really kind of go to an, another level of depth of our coverage and, and get the firsthand account of what it was like on the ground in Minneapolis for this incredibly historic, important case and trial. So uh, without any further ado, uh, Julia Janae, Court TV legal correspondent with us, uh, back from Minnesota. Uh, First of all, uh, how are you feeling energy-wise? Because I know after I covered, you know, big, big trials on the ground there where it's all happening there's like this release of adrenaline that it just like it it empties out of your body and then you're like like a noodle for like three weeks afterwards how you feeling it's definitely a time of decompression as far as my mind because we've just been covering only this trial for not just the two months but the months that were leading up to this trial so i definitely am taking some time to recharge and get ready for uh, the next trial on court TV, which we're already in the middle of right now in Missouri. But uh, Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about that coming up, but first uh, take us there. You know, you're there at the trial. What was, was there anything that surprised you that you weren't expecting during the course of this incredibly high profile case and whether it's something inside, outside the courtroom, on the ground, um, I I don't know. Was there anything that you were like, wow, I I didn't think that was going to happen? Outside, I was not expecting to be shocked about the level of security. We knew security was going to be a huge issue. We knew that from the pretrial litigation, from the way that the judge talked about this case and how Judge Peter Cahill was interested in protecting the jury and the parties. But I had no idea that I was going to actually be shocked walking up to the courthouse, that it was going to feel like a federal penitentiary going in. It's the only thing I can get close to. I've heard some people talk about war zones. I don't know if it was on that level, maybe just the optics of what was on the ground with the National Guard and their armed vehicles and they're walking around with their rifles. 
But walking into a courthouse that is under that kind of lockdown, and the second that you walk through the first layer of gates, because there were several, and seeing these uniformed men and women, uh, and the tank was there as soon as you walked in. You, you see it as soon as you uh, start going into the courthouse grounds. I think that surprised me the most. I don't know what I was expecting. I definitely expected, you know, more metal detectors, but not that level of intense showing of we are going to protect this courthouse at all costs. So how did how did that change the trial? Because you've covered trials all around the country, right? I mean, that's that's your job. Court TV legal correspondent, you, you, you travel from state to state, courthouse to courthouse. So how did that change the dynamics, do you think, of this case in, in total? And did all of that, do you think, in any way impact the way the case was presented or taken in by the jury? How how did that how did that factor play into ultimately uh, what's happening inside the courtroom? Well, thinking about the jury, I think the challenge was making them feel comfortable. Because if I'm surprised by it, of all the things that I've seen and the disaster areas that I've been on the ground for, how is this for a jury, a juror who has never been in this situation and didn't sign up for it? Uh, so I think that was a challenge for the court to make sure during Bordar that they were uh, questioning them, making sure that they could not let that distract them from the case and that it didn't make them feel compelled to choose one verdict over the other. Because when you see that level of security and protection, you know that they're worried about something bad happening. And it, it doesn't take a, a genius or someone who's even very read into the news to know what they're concerned about and more likely what verdict may bring about that type of danger. So I think they were very meticulous as far as the court going through and making sure these jurors understood and would not let that weigh in on their decision. But on the reporting side, it was a challenge just not being able to be as free in the courtroom going in and out. Exactly. And that was going to be my next my next question. The, the detachment of the process here where you're talking about at a normal trial, like I've been at trials where I could step into an elevator and I might be standing next to a juror or a witness or someone. How did how did that play? Was there was there a sense of detachment from the public in general in the way this whole thing transpired? There are still things that are completely confidential when it comes to how they moved this jury inside the courtroom. And we didn't want to get into it while the uh court was going on for security reasons, but this jury met at a, a location that was off-site that we don't know uh, where they were meeting. And then they were brought to the courthouse under guard and their entrance into the courthouse was, uh, to our understanding, was secret as well. Um, they did not want the public knowing how this jury was moving. And I think that helped with keeping them disconnected from the public. But there was a lot going on outside. I can't imagine a way, unless they were in some kind of an armored vehicle with the windows blacked out, that they weren't seeing what was happening around the courthouse. And there was just this huge display most days of uh, people showing their support for the family of George Floyd. 
Yeah, what you just described, I'm, I'm imagining kind of like a hostage situation, right? You you meet the 12 jurors somewhere, you put blindfolds on them, throw them in a van, bring them into the courthouse, they don't see anything. But obviously that's not what happened, right. but uh, amazing. So let's do this. Let's go through a few of the uh, moments now talking about the trial and, and give us a little more um, context and perspective on, on, on the significance of these moments. And I want to begin with um, Darnell Frazier. This is the, the young woman who recorded the video that went viral that started the entire case. Let's listen. When I look at George Floyd, I look at, I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have black, I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends. And I, I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. But it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. Probably one of the most important moments in the case, Julia. I agree. You can hear the weight of this case of George Floyd's death on her, on Darnella. She is someone who was 17 years old when this happened. I mean, she's so young to carry around a burden like that. So this was a moment that it was just hard to ignore because of not only her youth, but also the fact that she was the one who, if she likely had not posted this to Facebook, not put it on social media to where others were able to see it, that we would not have seen the outcry that followed Floyd's death. And, you know, going in, uh, we were wondering who who was this uh, young woman who recorded the video and what would she be like on the stand? And then to testify in that manner and, and making it so real and so personal, I mean, just amplified the impact of the video and amplified what what happened there. If, if that's even possible. Right. You're thinking, how could how could it get? But she did. And, and that was um, a, a big, big part of this case. And was the the people that were there, what they did, how they reacted, um, set the table, I, I think. And, and the way prosecutors presented that evidence was so effective because this is really how they started their case, by laying the foundation through the people who had to witness George Floyd's death in person. And to hear that frustration, incredibly powerful. Now, another important witness was um, one of the experts. And this is an expert who, you know, after he testified, lawyer after lawyer, like on my show and other places, like, wow, that, that, that's what you want from an expert. His name is Dr. Martin Tobin. Let's listen. Yes, uh, Mr. Floyd died from a low level of oxygen, and this caused damage to his brain that we see, and it also caused uh, a PEA arrhythmia that caused his heart to stop. And by uh, PEA, you mean pulseless electrical activity? Correct. It's a particular form of an abnormal beat of the heart, an arrhythmia, and a particular form of it. I will tell you, uh, in what I thought would have been the weakest part of the prosecution's case, 
became very, very strong through these experts. And, and why I'm saying that is Dr. Martin Tobin is not a pathologist. He's not the medical examiner. Every trial I've covered for year after year after year, Julie Janae, the prosecution puts on the medical examiner and relies on them for cause of death. But here they went in a completely different direction with someone who's never testified in a criminal case before. And it, and it was it was an unbelievable move. Dr. Martin Tobin was the star witness for them when it came to cause of death. He was concise, he was clear, and he was demonstrative. You felt that hearing him walk you through how George Floyd died, in his opinion. And you even heard an alternate juror talk about this trial after the fact, Lisa Christensen, I told CBS Morning that he was the reason that she really changed her mind about cause of death. The way he described it was so clear to her that she understood this is how he died. And she was a potential juror who during jury selection said, I believe that if you can talk, you can breathe, which really runs counter to what Dr. Tobin testified to. And the part that to me, it's unbelievable is that the prosecution went into this case and very unorthodox, right? You've got the attorney general's office hiring private attorneys to come in. They're not getting paid, but they're coming on board. They're volunteering their time to try the case. And they're not prosecutors. They're currently not prosecutors, not part of the attorney general's office. And I think it was that approach of how do we do this? Why? Well, why do we have to do it that way? We can do it however we want. Like there's a formula for how prosecutors try cases and they threw the formula out. And a big part of it was bringing in an expert like Dr. Martin Tobin, who was not a pathologist, who was not the medical examiner, is not the one who did the autopsy, but rely upon him as your main witness to prove uh, the most important element, which was the, the cause of death. Absolutely amazing, Julia. Uh, I'm wondering what sort of impact this might have on on the way prosecutors look at cases in the future. That's really true. You're pointing out something about them being, especially Jerry Blackwell, being a civil litigator. And there were things about this case, the feel of how they did things that reminds me of civil litigation and bringing any kind of experts that they brought in and just the approach overall. Um, that That's an interesting point. But I, I don't know that every prosecutor gets this kind of this level of resources. And that's just... Uh, this is going to be a fact. So will it change their approach? Perhaps. But will prosecutors also look at this and say, well, it's not possible. We don't have the resources to devote that kind of time to attract those kind of experts. Because a lot of these experts did it for free. The cardiologist who came in and talked about George Floyd's heart, he did this for free. And Dr. Mark Tobin as well. So um, that's not going to be the case in cases that don't have this kind of high profile. Well, I, I, I will say this, though. I think there's an opportunity for some level of a partnership between prosecutors and 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 private industry, private. Uh, and we're talking about experts in different areas that maybe that's part of what they do. Like lawyers donate their time all the time to pro bono cases. So why can't doctors and experts do a little bit of pro bono work to help out, um, you know, prosecutors in, in, in trying to prove cases? I, I think it's a fascinating concept and, and something uh, we, we need to keep an eye on. Now, finally, um, there was a pathologist who testified. Uh, you know, there was one for there were two for the prosecution, but they really didn't rely on them. But the defense relied on one, Dr. David Fowler. Let's take a listen. 
So this is one of those cases where you have so many conflicting um, different manners. The carbon monoxide would usually be classified as an accident, although somebody was holding him there. So some people would say you could elevate that to a homicide. You've got um, the drugs on board. In most circumstances, in most um, jurisdictions, a drug intoxication would be considered to be an accident. He's got significant natural disease, certainly the heart, the paraganglionoma, you know, you can certainly consider it um, as a potential exacerbating process, but I wouldn't put it at the top of the list there. So he's got a mixture of that. Um, and then he's, he's in a situation where he's been restrained in a very stressful situation. And that increased his fight and flight type reaction. And that would, during restraint, would be considered a homicide. And you put all of those together, it's very difficult to say which of those is the most accurate. So I would fall back to undetermined. Okay, so that's manner of death. Undetermined, and and I found this opinion uh, very credible. And I was wondering before the trial, you know, would the defense bring someone in and say this is exactly how it happened, or is it someone who would come in and say, well, you can't really tell exactly how it happened? Which and both of those are, you know, reasonable doubt if the jury believes it. Um, but David Fowler ultimately um, did not convinced this jury, did not raise that doubt that, hey, it could have been this, it could have been that, uh, Julia. Yeah, Dr. Fowler took a really interesting approach. He did give what he thought was, um, in his opinion, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, which is the phrase you have to use, um, in court that this cause of death was due to basically heart disease, that it was a, a cardiac arrhythmia due to the hypertensive condition of George Floyd. And he gave some things that complicated it. The drug use, the um, carbon monoxide exposure was the more novel one that he said was coming from the exhaust pipe of the squad unit that George Floyd's head was near. But ultimately, when he gave the manner of death, he said it isn't necessarily homicide, that it could be all of these things. and that this jury should look at it that way, but clearly not in a way that convinced them. Yeah, this is, this is a, a, again, fascinating in the way this battle of the experts played out. It was very unconventional. And in the end, as we all know, uh, prosecutors were able to overcome the burden that they carry, which is to prove it beyond any and all reasonable doubt. And they did that uh, with this jury. And the, the deliberations were quick. You know, this was just, a, just around 10 hours of deliberations for a three-week trial. That was rapid. So uh, to me, that's a resounding uh, victory here for prosecutors. I was really surprised at how quickly this jury came back. Not that it was not a, an easy decision for them, not that the prosecution didn't put forward a very clear case for them that was very compelling, but just the idea that if they were going to go back through all of the evidence, which a lot of juries do, they want to go through everything before they come to their decision, it would take many, many, many hours to go through all of those witnesses and go through all that testimony, all the documentation, even just the videos would have taken hours by itself. So. We don't know exactly what was happening in that jury deliberation room, but clearly they were able to come to a unanimous decision fairly quickly in the grand scheme of things. Yes, yeah, the one place Core TV cameras cannot go. 
right. Julia Janae, we will speak again because we know we've got sentencing coming up and all that. So we'll talk about this again. But when we come back, I want to talk about the live trial that's going on on Court TV right now as we speak. And this one's out of Missouri, involves a, a woman who is getting ready to get married two days before her wedding. She is murdered. And the man who prosecutors say is responsible, her own fiancé. Now, why would he do it? It might have something to do with the fact that he was already married to another woman. That's next. Renowned journalist Ashley Banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Banfield. All new episodes, Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. Well, folks, unfortunately, Julia Janae had to step away. We had some breaking news. She had to get on the air on Court TV because that's what we do, folks. Um, so uh, she's not here right now, but... I'm still here, Vinny Politan. And right now on Court TV, we're, we're covering another trial. That's what we do. We go from one case to the next, to the next, to the next. And we've got a, a live trial out of Missouri. And this one um, is fascinating and, and so, so tragic. Uh, a woman named Molly Watson was two days away from getting married. Two days. Had, had been planning this wedding, had been dating the man for like seven years, you know, he finally popped the popped the question. I guess they agreed, and then all those plans that you do when you're getting ready for a wedding—you know, picking out the wedding dress and the venue and the menu, and um, trying to get the guest list together. You're working with your wedding planner. It's it's so exciting, right? It's, it's absolutely exciting. And, and for those of you who don't know, I'm I'm, a, I'm also a former DJ. Oh, I'm still a DJ, but I, I used to DJ you know, a lot of events and. Uh, the excitement of a wedding is unparalleled, right? And it's all about the bride. I mean, it's her day. Yes, there's a groom there, uh, but but it's all about her. So she was so excited for this wedding. And then two days before this wedding, she is shot in the back of the head, dead in the mud in a remote area at some low water crossing road that was like a shortcut people would take, um, where sometimes you have to drive through a little bit of mud and water and is shot right by her and found by her car. And it's two days before her wedding. So when investigators uh, find her um, after a, a bystander, another bystander, right, uh, sees what's happening or, or sees the car, knows something's going on, talks to a man who was there and, and doesn't really get a good look at the guy, but as he drives away, realizes something weird was going on there. He, he backs, he, he circles back there and ends up finding Molly Watson dead and calls 911 and starts this investigation. Well, once investigators find out who Molly Watson is, they start doing some searching online and they find out that she is planning a wedding and she's two days away from her wedding. And in all these plans that are online, they're able to get the name of her fiance. So investigators go to visit her fiance. And when they get to the house, they're absolutely floored and shocked when they find out that the man they're talking to, James Addy, is living in a house with his family. His wife of 22 years, their daughter who's in high school, are all living in this house together. And, and, and they take him aside and talk to him, and he sort of admits to them, yeah, I got myself involved in something I shouldn't have. 
to, to say the least. So that's the situation here. You've got a man who's married for 22 years and is now getting ready to get married to another woman. And it's a woman that he's been dating for seven years. So like one third of his of his marriage, he had this other woman and now he was going to marry her. This is this is a bizarre scenario, but she ends up dead. So investigators, of course, are looking at him because he's involved in this um, double life. And, and now they've got to try to prove the case. And it's not an easy case to prove because, as I said, there was that bystander witness who was there who did speak with a man who was at the scene of the death um, but couldn't identify him in the courtroom. So he, he can't identify him in the courtroom, uh, so he can't pick him out and say, yeah, I saw him there. So investigators have to figure out another way to, to prove and, and, and attempt to prove that James Addy is at the scene of this death. And as I said, it's this low water crossing road, and there's a lot of mud. So they get into some forensics. The first thing they do is they see that his car is in the garage and it's full, uh, and it's full of mud and dust and everything. And that kind of you know raises a huge red flag for them. And now they've got to put that car though at the scene. How do you do that? Take a listen to the prosecution opening statement as they describe for this jury something that may remind you of the greatest legal movie of all time, My Cousin Vinny. Officers went out to look at the car that James Addy admitted to driving that night, covered in dust. And they made special note of the tires. The right rear tire of James Addy's car was identified as the source of the tire print found to speed from Mel's body. It's all about tire tracks, folks. Tire tracks. And you remember my cousin Vinny, it was all about the, the, the tire tracks. And, and yet Marissa Tomei came up as the expert witness to figure it all out for the jury and explain it to him and win the case for my cousin Vinny and Ralph Macchio. Right. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But that's that's how they're going to attempt to tie James Addy to the scene of the death is through uh, matching up the tire tracks that were found at the scene with the tires on his vehicle because the eyewitness can't identify him. The eyewitness says he was driving a Buick, but he's got a Mercury. I mean, there's all these uh, other problems that they have. Now, the defense has their own little comeback to all of this. And, and, you know, because we've all seen the movie and we know Marissa Tomei nailed it as an expert. But here's what the defense thinks about um, this type of expert. We're talking the perfect tire impression. And you'll hear testimony about how these tires are evaluated ostensibly trying to be matched with a plaster cast taken in the field. But what you will also hear is that there is no science in this practice to speak of. There are criminalists who get training and looking at two things next to each other and saying, aha, in my opinion, these things are a match. And it's their opinion that apparently matters. There's no scientific standards. There's no data, there's no, there is nothing to consider this scientific evidence. 
Well, I beg to differ. I believe it is science. Wow. So that, that's going to be the battle here. And the defense actually has a point here when, when it comes to this type of, of evidence. It's the same thing with handwriting experts. That's another uh, form of expertise that uh, defense attorneys uh, really question whether or not it's an actual science. So it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out and, and what the jury does with it. Now, the other big part of the case, obviously, is James Addy. I mean, who's going to like this guy? You're, you're living in a house with a woman who's been uh, a faithful, dedicated wife for 22 years. You've raised children together. you got a daughter in high school. It's prom night. And and you're planning a wedding in two days with, with someone you've been seeing for seven years? So he, he's got a huge problem in, in terms of the jury's not going to like him. They're not going to like his story. They're going to question all of it. And it's, and it's very motive-oriented. But it's not a simple case. It's not a simple case for prosecutors because you're asking this jury to take a little bit of a leap into the world of tire tracks and 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 to put two and two together. So uh, we'll see how that all plays out. But there are some very dramatic moments taking place in this trial because who were the witnesses? The witnesses for the prosecution will be people like the wedding planner who will talk about all the details of this wedding. It was a real wedding. This was not, you know... We're going to go to the justice of the peace or we're going to fly out to Vegas uh, for a quickie wedding. No, they, they picked out a venue. Um, they had a website. They had a wedding guest list that was, you know, between 40 and 70 people, uh, at least from his side, that were, were invited to all of this. His kids allegedly were on the invitation list. I mean, this is nuts. The whole thing is crazy. And, and. From my perspective, you know, this is the type of case where a, a jury's going to look at that defendant and say, you know, and, and the defense will always argue this, just because someone's a cheater doesn't make them a murderer. But this takes it one step further. He's not just cheating. He is a, a bigamist so it, or wants to be a bigamist. And, and it seems like the defense to murder here is that he was planning to be a happy bigamist. Oh, yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, what's the argument? Ladies and gentlemen, the jury. He loved Molly Watson. He would not murder Molly Watson. He, he loved his, you know, he, he, he loved his wife, too. I mean, he, all right, it's not the way you and I love each other, and, and maybe it's not traditional, but, you know, he, he's a man who loved two women and, and would never harm or hurt either one of them, which is why he was going to be married to two women. I, I don't know how this argument goes, folks. I'm making it up as I go along. Uh, but it's a, a fascinating case on, on many different levels because of the forensics, uh, but really because of the, the, the drama involved. And, and he doesn't really have an alibi. His alibi he gave to police was that he went to go visit his friend, but his friend wasn't there. And that's problematic. That's problematic because they, if his friend was there, then okay, is his friend telling the truth? Not to, No, but he was basically, his alibi is he was driving somewhere uh, by himself and going to see someone who wasn't there. And meanwhile, you've got uh, a lot of other problems involving the, the tire tracks, his clothes, the testimony of his own daughter who witnessed certain things and was honest with investigators about it and took the stand for the prosecution. So all of this uh, leads me to think this is going to be a difficult case for the defense, but you never know. You never know where reasonable doubt lives. Um, but for James Addy, um, he may have to get up on the witness stand and explain to this jury 
Number one, his feelings about Molly Watson. And number two, what was the plan here? Like, was the plan to to be married to two women at once and not tell either one of them? I, I, I guess that's what he's going to do. But it's a fascinating case here on Court TV. When we come back, though, I want to explain to you why this case is another example of why circumstantial evidence should get more respect. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. Okay, I've said this before, and I'll, and I'll say it again, uh, because it, it's an important concept in, in criminal law, which is circumstantial evidence deserves a lot more respect than it gets especially from uh, criminal defense attorneys and the public in general, you know, and, and I hear news reporters do this all the time. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's just, it's just a circumstantial case. It's merely a circumstantial case. Well, let me explain this to you one more time, what direct evidence is. And they're really, uh, for, for all intents and purposes, there's really three forms of, of direct evidence that we get in, in criminal trials, mostly. Eyewitnesses, right? People who see the crime take place. And... This is an example right here in this trial where you have an eyewitness who can't identify the person that he saw and can't identify the type of car that he saw because of all the other factors. I mean, eyewitnesses aren't expecting to be eyewitnesses, so they see something. Uh, but if you have five people who witness the same thing, you're going to get five slightly different versions or maybe completely different versions of what they saw. This has been proven that, that eyewitness testimony, which is direct evidence if they, if they see the actual crime take place, is extremely unreliable. But that's direct evidence. Another form of direct evidence we just saw in the Derek Chauvin trial are, are videos where you have a, a videotape of the actual crime. Now, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a good video, right, it's a, a clean video, not grainy, and, it's, and it starts at the right time and ends at the right time and, is, and the camera is situated in the correct place, it can be very, very compelling. And that's, that was the case in the Derek Chauvin case. I mean, you had direct evidence of, of the crime taking place because you had a video of it happening and you actually had multiple videos of it happening. So there, yeah, it was very persuasive. But many times, videos can be a little bit grainy. They can start at the wrong time. You don't have the context of the video. Maybe the angle's off a little bit, or it's a little too far away, and you can't quite see everything, and you sort of see what's happening. Um, a great video is great direct evidence, but uh, most of the videos that we usually get in cases are not exactly home runs when it comes to direct evidence of a case because they don't capture. Generally speaking, most crimes are not captured on video and, and shot uh, in a way where you can actually see what's taking place. The Derek Chauvin trial was the exception to that. Another uh, form of direct evidence is a confession by the defendant. And confessions, right? Why would someone admit to something if they didn't do it? Well, there's a whole long line of false confessions. Take any high-profile case and ask police officers or investigators how many people call in to confess to a crime that they did not commit, right? So you've got that taking place on the one hand, and then you've got, on the other hand, coerced confessions. And we saw something like that on court TV. 
Uh, the Skylar Richardson case. This was a young woman who was accused of murdering her newborn baby. And part of the allegation was that she set the child on fire. And in a video interrogation, she admitting, admitted to investigators that she set the child on fire. But it was a false confession. How do I know that? Well, the child wasn't burned. Okay, the child was not burned. The expert initially told investigators that the remains of the of this newborn baby had been burned. Then that same expert quickly thereafter reneged on that opinion and took it back and said, no, 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 that child was not burned. There was no evidence that the child was burned in the interim when between the first opinion and second opinion by that expert, Skylar Richardson, a teenage girl, was interrogated by police. At that point, police believed the child had been burned and they were able to get her to admit and confess to burning the baby. And and the bottom line was the baby was never burned. That is a false confession. So that's direct evidence as well. But it's also can be somewhat unreliable at times. You have to look at all the circumstances surrounding those confessions, the circumstances surrounding the video, the circumstances surrounding the eyewitnesses. And what are all those circumstances, ladies and gentlemen? Circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence. And in this case of James Addy, the circumstantial evidence uh, is very compelling. And, and, and it's going to have to carry the day uh, for a conviction. You've got the motive, right? The impending wedding of his girlfriend. He's married for 22 years. That's a circumstance. You've got the alleged lies that he told to his new bride-to-be, to his wife, to his family, to investigators. Those also circumstances surrounding this case. The fact that he has no alibi, that he to- said he was driving around to go see a friend who wasn't there. That is another circumstance surrounding this case, the mud on his car, the tire tracks, um, all of the other evidence that points to uh, him being involved but doesn't directly prove it is all circumstantial evidence. And when you put all those pieces together, do they uh, create the picture that this man is guilty beyond any and all reasonable doubt? And, And circumstantial evidence is necessary and can be very, very reliable. And again, you have to evaluate it like any other piece of evidence. Are there other explanations for it? Are there other reasons for it? But when there isn't and you've got multiple pieces and they're all pointing in one direction, a jury is permitted to put the pieces together the same way the investigators put those pieces together to prove it to that jury beyond any and all reasonable doubt. This is a fascinating case out of Missouri, folks. Um, in the show notes, we've got links uh, to this trial of James Addy. I suggest that you you click on those and check it out and also watch the trial uh, on Court TV. Uh, and when that trial's over, guess what? We've got another one and another one and another one. You can watch Court TV if you have a digital antenna. Make sure you rescan it so you can get our signal. And uh, watch my show every night from 8 to 11. I'll bring you all the big moments uh, from the trial that we're covering on Court TV as well as all the other big crime and justice stories happening out there. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, Tell a friend about the podcast. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.